Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and bless us and sustain us. And today, as we continue to make our way through Acts, we pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight into your word, that we can understand uh, these things that you've recorded and preserved for us so that we can know uh, where we've come from and have a view to where things are headed. And so we uh, give you all thanks for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, in your main notes, we're on page 21. Last week, we, we worked our way looking at the detail of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost when he was given some explanation about what had happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the disciples were given the ability uh, to speak to all of the different uh, Jewish people groups that had gathered in Jerusalem, they were able to hear the mighty works of God in their own uh, language. And so uh, in, the, in that sermon, Peter explains that this is fulfillment of the prophetic text that look forward to the pouring out of the Spirit, which is really interesting there. Um, just as kind of a sideline on that, and you, you can write these passages down. There are several passages in the New Testament that talks specifically about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the end times. And let me just give you a couple of those. Y'all can go read them. A lot of them will, look, will be very familiar to you. Uh, Isaiah 32, 15 through 17 references that, uh, the giving of the Spirit. Also, Isaiah 44, verses 2 through 5. Wait a minute. What was that again? Isaiah 32, 15 through 17. Okay. And then 44, 2 through 5. And then in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. What chapter now? Uh, chapter 11, ch Ezekiel 11, verses 19 through 20. Uh, Ezekiel again, chapter 36. So Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. That's one of the big ones. You can star that one. Uh, that, that's one of the massive ones. And then another massive one is in Jeremiah. 31, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And the reason that I mention those, if you go and look at those, uh, Peter doesn't reference any of those in terms of the point. And, and, you know, if I were if I were looking at what happened, you know, I would probably jump to those first. But but Peter doesn't. Uh, the Holy Spirit brings to mind this kind of obscure passage out of Joel. And the reason is, last week I said, it's got two things in it. It does talk about the pouring out of the Spirit, but it also ends with this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? None of those other passages have that last phrase in it. And I think that's why the Holy Spirit brings that to Peter's mind in this sermon. Um, also, it's just fascinating to me that as we look at the text, that Peter and the other apostles used to prove the death, the resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, all these things, they never go to the obvious passages. A lot of times they go to these obscure passages that are out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus did this a lot. Jesus would draw on obscure passages that people are, you know, I'm thinking, wow, of all the places he could go, you know. Uh, Peter never goes to John 3.16, anything. They go, no, I'm joking, that ain't even been written yet. But I'm just saying... He doesn't go to any of the passages you, you would expect him to go to, right? Uh, and I, I find that really, really fascinating. And I think that there may be the assumption that um, they're, they're drawing on these passages to give the full 
representation because everybody kind of knows those other passages. And so, you know, if those are already in their mind, then they link to these lesser known passages. But I find that really interesting. Uh, at the end of that sermon, Peter has squarely blamed uh, the people in Jerusalem for crucifying Jesus, who has been now declared both their Lord and Messiah. And last week we left off, and I wanted to say a little bit more about this, top of page 21, we will pick up with the conclusion to this sermon. Uh, it says, now when they heard this, that is the crowd, they came under deep conviction. Uh, I'd rather translate that more literally. They, they were cut to the heart or they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do then? So you can see that they, uh, the spirit is working on them, right? They've been pierced right through to the core of their being and realizing that they're complicit with this great evil that's been done. Well, what are we supposed to do? And, and this is what Peter tells them to do. Uh, verse uh, Acts 2.38 and 39, he says, repent. Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just stop right there and, and talk about that a little bit. This is the only place in Acts, only here and also in 319, where you have this specific command uh, to repent. We're gonna, and this is one of the great things about Acts. As the message goes forward and, and we see the Holy Spirit being poured out in the kind of the gates being open to these different people groups. Every time it happens, it happens in a different way. There's no formula for it, right? And so here uh, we have an illustration where Peter is preaching. The people ask, what must we do? And then he tells them what to do. In another episode, Peter is going to be preaching and the Holy Spirit falls on the people before they even have a chance to do anything. And so it's really interesting the way all this plays out. And we'll, we'll talk more about those specific instances. But here... This uh, message sets the, the pattern for the things that come later. And so everything that he mentions here are critical. The, the first word that he uses there, Peter says to them, repent. And that word in Greek, um, whenever we say repent, that does not communicate a whole lot anymore in common terms. Most people think that repentance is just being sorry over what you've done, you know, but the, the word in Greek here is far wider and more powerful. Uh, and the way I would translate this uh, word, in a, <laughs> this is very clunky, but you'll get the idea. Um, what, he's, what that word means is you've got to change your mind about everything. You've got to have a radical reorientation in your thinking, right? In other words, you had rejected Jesus and had been complicit in his crucifixion, you've got to change the way you're thinking about him in every way whatsoever, right? It's, it's what I call a, a radical personal revolution. The, the word that um, this is kind of analogous to in the Old Testament is just the Hebrew word turn. Uh, there's not a word repentance in Hebrew in the Old Testament, but over and over again, you'll hear the Lord saying, you must turn from your idols, your worthless idols, turn back to me. And that's the idea of it, right? Uh, people are, we're headed in the wrong direction. We're focused on the wrong things. We're worshiping the wrong things. And so in order to get square with reality, we have to turn everything in the way we're thinking and in the direction we're headed. And that's what this word means, right? Uh, repent 
although that might have communicated something years and years ago, it doesn't quite carry the weight, I, th I think, that we need to put with it. So in other words, he's telling them, listen, y'all have got to change the way you're thinking about all of this. Uh, completely turn around in the way you're related to Jesus and what you've done so far. And then he says, and these two things are tied together, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, all that is linked together there. You see that? Be baptized, uh, each of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism uh, during this time is... Um, you know, in our modern times, there's a lot of things that are attached to it. But if we could just go back and think about the way they would have thought about it in the first century. Baptism was something that was starting to be performed, uh, particularly among Jews. And they would and there's some debate over whether or not they did it with proselytes, Gentiles that were becoming right uh, followers of Yahweh, the one true God, becoming Jewish, so to speak. They had different ceremonial washings and whatnot. But in the scriptures, you remember John the Baptist is the one that comes forward first in the Gospel of Luke. And he is practicing a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And he's telling them the same way. You've got to turn from your wicked ways and turn back to the one true God. And when they would perform the rite of baptism, the rite of baptism symbolized washing away your old life, being reborn and entering into a whole new life with a whole new set of allegiances and loyalties and responsibilities. And that's the idea here, that Peter wants them to be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus. In other words, you are now going to be identified with the person and the power and the authority of Jesus. Your whole previous life is going to be done away with. You're going to become a new person, right? You're changing the way you're thinking about everything, right? Yeah, right, <laughs> right? And you turn into Jesus and you're now becoming part of his people group. That's what that that's the way they would have understood this. It's a radical transformation, right? Radical re reorientation. And we'll see these things worked out uh, in the rest of the rest of the, the um, book of Acts, because what we see is these are earlier believers. They start to function like a family, like a whole new family group. And the responsibilities that they have towards one another is one that you would share with your family members, right? And we're going to see that in the very next chapters. It's, well, everything's going to start to fall into place. And so basically what Peter is calling them to do is to turn away from their old life and now be completely identified with this Jesus, right? With the way of Jesus, with his name, with his power and his authority. And we're, we're going to see all that as we go forward. And then he tells them, right, as you do that, then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as they do this, the Holy Spirit will be given to them. And then finally, he says, verse 39, for the, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is what Peter's telling them to do in verses 38 and 39 is roughly equivalent to what Joel had talked about. All those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right. This is what it looks like. You turn away from your old life. You give your allegiance to Jesus, right? And then the gifts of God will be bestowed upon you. That's what this looks like. And so we're going to see this happen. And it's going to happen in a bunch of different ways in the rest of the book of Acts. It's not going to happen exactly the way it happens here with Peter uh, and this crowd. But nevertheless, uh, the same steps are going to kind of be in place there. 
Um, now, before we move on to, to the conclusion, there's anybody any questions or comments on any of that before we go on? All right. Um, verse 40, Acts 2.40 there in the middle of page 21. He says, uh, and we talked a lot about this last week. He says, now with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Uh, notice that word saved there. We're, we're going to talk about that more in just a little bit. Be saved from this corrupt generation or wicked generation is another way to translate that. Uh, so those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Man, that's incredible. Um, it, you know, we're, we are talking about, this is not a population in Jerusalem like the size of Memphis. You understand? This is a, this is a much smaller people group that would have been in Jerusalem at that time. And to have 3,000 people out of the number that's there, that is a significant number, you know? I mean, even in today's terms, can you imagine having an open-air preaching thing and three people, 3,000 people get saved at the end of it? That would be wild, uh, even in, in terms of the way we think about things today. So here again, we, you know, we see Peter working through the power of the Spirit and the Spirit being present and um, really significant things taking place. And then verse 42, this becomes a summary statement that hedges us to the next thing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Uh, now, all those are fairly easy to understand. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So Peter, James, John, all the rest, they are apparently teaching uh, these early disciples what Jesus had taught them. Right? That's, I don't know what else they would be teaching. Uh, so here the people are all devoted to their teaching as the spirit brings that to their memory and they bring it up uh, to the fellowship. We're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. That that word really doesn't do it justice. Uh, the word that's used there in Greek uh, means to share in common. And so the idea is that they're devoting themselves to the apostles teaching to sharing everything in common. And we'll, we'll see that here in just a little bit in uh, the next chapters. Uh, to the breaking of bread, uh, there's a huge debate over whether or not that, um, that phrase, the breaking of bread, becomes um, almost a technical term for celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I don't think it's a technical term, but what I do think is going on is, and we see this in the early church, is that anytime they shared a meal together and they broke bread, which, by the way, this is the way Jewish people began their meals with the breaking of bread. They would literally break a loaf and then a prayer will be said and a blessing. Uh, and Jesus, when he did the Passover with them, as he broke the bread, he says something that is so significant. And we've bypassed it and we've sacramentalized it and turned it into something <laughs> for high church and everything else. But when he broke the bread, he says in that context, he says, as often as you do this, do this to remember me. As often as you. So what does that mean? Every time believers get together at a meal, you remember Jesus. That's what that meal was supposed to be. Right. And if you think about it, the elements that he picked for his body and his blood would be sitting on every table at every meal that they're going to have from that point forward. There might not always be lamb there. There definitely wouldn't be bitter spices and horseradish if you've ever done a Passover, right? But bread, 
and wine. It's there at every table. And there's indication that the early church, every time they got together as believers, this is what they would do. They would eat. They would say words, probably the very words that Jesus used. And in that meal, they would celebrate what had been done for them. Isn't that important, right? And, but then later, we turned it into something that you only do at church on a particular Sunday, and you have to have a priest or a pastor to do it. Utter nonsense. Jesus never intended for any of that, right? The, 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 now, y'all, bear with me just a minute, and y'all all probably know this. The modern institutions of the church are so far removed from the simplicity that Jesus had in mind when he talked about all these things, those institutions often become an incredible barrier for people actually getting to the heart of what Jesus wanted us to do, right? And, and we've all experienced that. I mean, all of us in this room have experienced something to that level. And again, I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm just saying we need to look at our traditions and always ask the question, why are we doing what we do? And, and are we missing the heart of what was intended in these things, you know? Um, so here, this, this breaking of the bread, I, I think the idea is, is that they were sharing meals from house to house. And as they did it and they broke the bread, they remembered what Jesus had taught them right in the Last Supper and so forth. And then a really interesting statement. And I love that this translation actually gets it right. And notice it says, and to the prayers. You see the the there? That sounds like definite prayers. Uh, later, we find out that the apostles and the disciples are still meeting at the temple at critical times, at the, at the time of the morning prayers and evening prayers and all the rest. And so I think the idea here, more than likely, is that they're still devoting themselves to the uh, times of prayer that were dictated within Judaism, right? So they were still saying their morning, middle day, and evening prayers, the prayers that were associated. And at this time, you know, there were often psalms that were um, kind of a liturgy, that were to be prayed uh, during those hours and throughout the year and so forth. And the reason I bring that up, because we're going to see this um, as we move forward in these earlier chapters, the early Christians have not separated themselves from Judaism in general. They're still meeting in the temple. Um, and what becomes clear is, as these things are developing, it's not like... <laughs> Jesus had given Peter and the other disciples a blueprint of, okay, this is what we used to do, and now this is what we're going to do. Instead, we see this development where they're in the temple, they're still acting very Jewishly, and then as things develop, things start to spread out uh, and develop in ways that the apostles and the disciples, they just kind of follow the Spirit as He leads and opens up the doors and new things start to happen. But here at this point... Uh, things are still very, very Jewish, right? These are still Jewish people in Jerusalem doing Jewish things. And we're going to have that for the next several chapters because this work of salvation that God has begun, uh, as Paul says later, it's for the Jew first and then also to the Greek. But this offer of salvation comes to the people of Israel first and they get every opportunity they can to respond positively to what's happened in Jesus. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see this as we move forward. And I think it's really important to think about it in that, in that Jewish context. Now, we're going to say a lot more about that because those four things, apostles, teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread, the prayers, all of those are going to show up uh, in these coming chapters in one way or another as we see the, the life of the early church actually blossoming and growing and so forth. So we'll, we'll, we'll see those things uh, pick back up. Anybody, questions or comments on that? All right. 
Going once, going twice. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. So, the, so we've always, I've always considered that a sacrament. I've always heard that, you know, baptism and marriage are sacraments and that the, the wine and bread, of course, are, are blessed by the minister. So are you saying that that is not relevant anymore? Or you're just saying that we should have that heart of thinking of Jesus every time we gather together? Yeah, yeah. That's the basic thing. And, 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 and part and, and two, uh, let me let me say let me say this is the background of part of my words. And I probably should have said this first. When when Jesus, everything I read about when Jesus thinks about the church and all, he never intended there to be a separation between laity and priesthood. We each and every one of us are qualified through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to be priest. Right. And. In, in, in the larger thing. And everything that we do should reflect that in, in some way or another, you know. And the reason I say that is it's very clear that within these early believers, they didn't see a separation that way. They didn't, you know, they didn't make that kind of distinction, you know. that They also did not... Um, um, now, I want to be really careful how that I say this. Let me say it this way. Everything they did in the name of Jesus was holy. Right. Which means all of life should be thought of as sacramental. Right. Not just certain things we do. And 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 all of that, of course, becomes very, very twisted when we get to, you know, um, I mean, by the time we get to 400 years later. And the early church is centered in Rome and, you know, you got the split in between the Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity. Even by that time, there are all these traditions that have developed that um, that are not questioned and they get propagated and propagated and propagated until eventually in the Middle Ages, Christianity in the West and in the East looks like something that you can't find anywhere in the scriptures. You know, you got popes and bishops and prelates and, you know, all this, the high church and everything that, you know, all of us that are in this room that are Protestants, we all rebelled, <laughs> rebelled against all of that and then recreated the exact same thing. We just relabeled all of it, you know, which is what I find interesting in church history. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, and, and, yeah, the main point I was making in that is everything is just very simple here, you know. And, and also, I think it's really important that Luke is not writing these things and recording these things to tell us this is how they did it in the beginning and this is the way we should do it from here on out. He's just, he's just recording this, this is what happened. And as it happened, we see that it develops as it goes, you know. And, and I think the Lord, because he hasn't given us a blueprint on the way things ought to be done, he gives us great freedom and latitude in figuring out how to do these things, you know, that he calls us. And, but I am, a, I am an anarchist at heart. I mean, deeply, deeply. And all that means is I don't trust anybody other than Jesus that claims to have authority to tell you to do anything, right? That's, that's ultimately what that is, right? And so I have no faith in human institutions. And so a lot of me, y'all just have to take that with a grain of salt because everything in me pushes back against things that become too, you know, formulaic. And, you know, and so, yeah, so that, that's a great question. One of the things that, that I think is so important about, uh, like the book of Acts, 
is, is it calls us to question these traditions that have developed over the last 2,000 years that become man-made and not built on the foundation, you know, of the truth. And that happens all the way across the board, you know. Uh, I, I, you know, one of the things that I say is that most people, the Lord spends the first half of their life getting them to the church and then the last half of their life helping them recover from the church, you know. Because usually where you enter does, does a lot of things that you have to be deprogrammed from, you know. And, but that's, that's just human nature, you know. And I love the glorious, uh, the glorious chaos of it all, you know. If, if, I mean, and again, I, I would encourage you to study church history, you know, everything that happens after this. Because the fact that you and I are still in this room 2,000 years with all the chaos that's happened from the book of Acts until now, it is unbelievable. And sometimes you look at that and you think, Lord, are you in control of anything whatsoever? And he's like, yeah, I am. And this is the way it was intended to be, right? It's not something you can get your mind around. The, the, the kingdom of God, you remember Jesus talks about kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. But you throw it out there and it takes root and pretty soon it's larger than any other tree in the garden. Its roots are all spread all out. And the idea is that you, you, you can't control the kingdom. Kingdom tears up everything that it comes in contact with, right? You, 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 you tell the Lord, well, we can't do that. And he's immediately going to tear that all to pieces, right? You know, right? Uh, and so this is what we're seeing, you know? This is, man, this is out of control. I remember I read, um, uh, when I was at Dallas in a church history class, reading about Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakenings, y'all know, in the early colonial days. And Edwards and the group of pastors that had gotten together to pray and the Holy Spirit was poured out and there was an incredible revival, you know, and it wasn't due to anything they were, they had changed. Edward said it was just that we all got together and started to pray. And he said after those events, he said, you know, I was witness to the Holy Spirit being poured out in power and glory one time in my life. He says, I never want to see that ever again. It is terrifying. You are out of control. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what to do. All you have to do is just kind of hang on by the skin of your teeth and hope that you survive it, right? Well, that's what's happening in the book of Acts, right? Peter and the others are just hanging on by their bare fingernails trying to figure out what in the world is going on here, you know? And he's getting, and, you know, I have no, I, I, have, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that after this first sermon that Peter, Peter preached, the first thing that went through his mind after they baptized all these 3,000 people was, where in the world did all that come from? <laughs> right? I mean, you, you listen to that and you think, where, and, and we're going to see that in just a little bit. Even the people who are talking to Peter are like, this guy has no training whatsoever. How does he know how to speak like that? Where's that coming from? This guy's a fisherman from Galilee. I mean, what in the world's going on? Right? Re really, really powerful. And well, look at the very next thing. I mean, you, you, you can, uh, this is act, that's actually a great segue because look, look at top of page 22, what happens. Uh, this section, Acts 2, 43 through 47, this is a summary passage that serves as a hinge that uh, takes us just from where we've come from to where we need to go next. And you can see how he summarizes key things that we've just heard a little bit about, but also introduces things that are going to happen next says, now fear came on everyone, awe uh, came on everyone. 
and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common, and they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Uh, that's going to be a major theme in the next couple of chapters here. Uh, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. See that? So they're still meeting in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. There's the breaking of the bread again. Uh, notice here, though, instead of the apostles' teaching, it's the performing signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, so, you know, we're getting a fuller picture of everything that happened. Uh, it says, now they ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So that's kind of a summary of the general spirit of everything that's going on here, right? Notice also you get the definition of what the word fellowship means. And we talked about this, I think, in one of the previous weeks. Um, and the idea is they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. See that? So the people who had needs, they were making sure that they were all taken care of. Now, we're going to talk more about that when we get over to chapter four, because some significant things happen there. But here, Luke is just throwing out that basic idea for us to understand what's going on, um, which is really, I mean, think about the simplicity of that right there, right? Th uh, mm. I, I don't know that we've ever really gotten back to anything like that. I don't, I don't know that we could get back to anything like that, right? Uh, this is just what the Spirit is doing at this time. Uh, and so the, the general spirit of things are there, but we're going to see how that develops uh, as, we, as we go forward. Uh, also, you know, just another couple of things. Notice verse 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. So they are taking these things very seriously, right? They're, they're all getting together. They're probably, again, they're probably, you know, hearing for the first time some of these people, the teachings of Jesus through Peter and John and the rest of them. And so it's very important that they uh, really understand what they've committed themselves to. And they're doing everything they possibly can to actually do that. Uh, the mention of the temple then gets us ready for this next episode. And it's really interesting. This is the very thing Tom just, just talked about. Uh, so we'll pick up bottom of page 22. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. 3 in the afternoon was one of the allotted times for prayer. Um, and also there was a time of evening sacrifices that were given then. Verse 2, Now a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. Uh, that handout on the temple, th this is why I've given it to you because most of us probably don't have a good clear picture of what, we're, you know, what, what Luke is describing here for us. But if you take that out, Herod's second temple uh, on the temple mount you can see the, the general orientation of everything. The most significant things are numbered there for you. Uh, number one up at the top is the uh, temple proper. That, that's the place that had the, um, the uh, holy place and then the holy of holies. The second part within that, the, the outer part uh, was where the priest would go and apply the blood day by day to the curtain and um, they would take, you know, incense in and so forth. The, with the back part of that, the square part of it, 
was the Holy of Holies where the high priest was allowed to go in only one time out of the year on the Day of Atonement to take blood back uh, to cover the uh, dwelling place of God and so forth. So you can kind of see that in the middle and then everything else is built out around it. Uh, something, y'all might know this, you may not know this, this temple complex, and, that, and I, I, I like that this translation has temple complex because it's talking about this whole area here on your chart. And I don't know if you know this, but the temple was still under construction even at this time. Uh, they, they, they were still building parts of this, uh, developing parts of it. Uh, the Herods were, uh, King Herod at the time. We'll see him a little bit later. Um, a lot of interesting things going on there. We're not going to focus on that yet. But a as you can see uh, in your chart right up here, they try to uh, give us some indication of where this beautiful gate is. And there's two possible options for it. Number the first one is that number 11 there. And you can see on this chart, they actually call it the gate called beautiful, the beautiful gate uh, 11. And it's the gate that separated the court of Gentiles. From, and that's this larger court out here. If you were a Gentile, right, not part of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you could come up into the temple complex into this area here, right? But uh, past that gate, the gate beautiful on this uh, diagram, that next court was the court of women. And only Jewish women could go into there, right? So if you were a Gentile, you couldn't come into that. I shouldn't say only Jewish women. That's as far as the Jewish women could go. Gentiles couldn't come into that court. And then the last one in there, um, verse 7, um, verse seven uh, number 7 is the gate uh, Nicanor. And then right past that, you have the priest courtyard and the uh, Israelites courtyard, which in the older temple was called the uh, courtyard of men. And that, yeah, and that was where uh, the men would bring the sacrifices and so forth. So you, you can see if you're a Gentile, you can only go so far. If you're a woman, you can only go so far. If you're a man, you can only go so far. If you're a priest, you can only go so far. If you're a high priest, you can only go so far. So this whole thing was to limit access to God. There's a lot going on there, but that's beyond what we want to talk about today. So this, this, this gate called Beautiful... Uh, Scholars debate whether or not it's actually the one that's labeled number 11 or if it's the number seven, the gate of Nicanor. Um, it doesn't really matter ultimately because this uh, guy, he is sitting at a gate that everybody would see day by day, right? As they're going into the temple and seeing the things that are going on. Um, and then uh, after that, we'll, we'll see this in just a second, this, this long outer Am I looking at that right? This long outer wall up here is called Solomon's Portico. And that's where Peter and John are going to go back and they're going to teach. And th this is where rabbis would often gather and teach during the day. Uh, it's also where Jesus would teach when he came up to the temple. So it's clear that uh, John and P Peter are simply doing what they had done with Jesus before. Right? They're going to the temple and they're teaching in the same places where Jesus had taught. So that kind of gives you the context for, for what's going on here uh, as they go into the temple so you can kind of visualize it. Uh, and so this, this man who was lame from birth, he is there and he's been begging for his whole life as the people were entering into the temple, uh, particularly the Israelites going into the court of women and then, then on up further uh, as the men were allotted to. 
So top, top page 23, kind of with that in mind, it says, uh, now when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. And Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Uh, I, I love this, that Peter just does it. He didn't even ask the guy about it. Right? He, he didn't ask Peter and John to be healed. Uh, Peter just does it to him. <laughs> uh, uh, three seven. Notice that name of Jesus there, right? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, or the Nazarene as this has it. 3.7, then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up and at once his feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up, stood and started to walk and he entered the temple complex with him, walking, leaping, uh, praising God. Uh, right up beside that, right down Isaiah 35.6. Um, Isaiah 35.6 makes a specific mention about the lame will leap um, as the time of blessing and refreshing comes from the Lord. So here this man is doing that very thing. Uh, 3.9, it says, Now all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Bottom of page 23. While he was... I love those passages like that. I don't, I don't have to say anything about that. If, if, if you can't understand what we just read... Nothing else I can do for you, right? I love how, he, especially after going through Luke last year, oh, man, those things are like a breath of fresh air. Uh, then we get to another sermon, Acts 3, 11 through 26. It says, now while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. That's Solomon's portico that we just looked at on the chart there. Now when Peter saw this, he addressed the people. So here's Peter's second sermon. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? That's a great statement. Here Peter's saying, I didn't do that. Uh, we didn't do that through anything that we had. And then he gives the explanation. 3.13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Boy, howdy. Peter has never heard of a seeker-sensitive sermon. <laughs> right? Look at that. He goes right into it. Hey, listen, we didn't do this. Jesus did this. And y'all are the ones that killed him. Y'all are the ones that killed him. Let me say it one more time. Y'all are the ones that killed him, right? Man, just right out the gate. I love it. Um, because again, Peter's trying to wake these people up, right? Uh, a couple of interesting things there. Verse 13, where he refers to the fact that uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. That word for servant there can also be translated as child, which I find really interesting. And maybe there's a subtle play of words there. Um, and I'll talk more about that a little bit later in, in another context. 
Um, but the emphasis is on, but you've handed him over and you denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So, so notice, he again puts the blame squarely on them. Pilate wanted to release him, but you wanted to have him killed. And then these are such powerful words. You denied the holy and righteous one. That would call back to a lot of the prophetic text that referred to the Messiah to come as the holy and righteous one, right? The, the, the servant of Isaiah who's going to come and redeem Israel. So there's a lot a lot that these Jewish people would have uh, understood or probably, you know, that would have resonated with them in a very powerful way. So they have denied the Holy and Righteous One, the Messiah, and they asked instead for a murderer to be given to him. And we talked a little bit about this last week. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Right? Y'all have killed the very source of life. Later in P uh, Paul's letters, He's going to refer to Jesus as the origin of all things, right? Everything that exists has its origin in the creative work of Jesus. And here Peter is touching on that in a sense. Um, as he says, you know, you, you've killed the source of life there. Um, and again, you know, y'all will want to go back and read like Isaiah 52, 52 and 53, because there that's one of those uh, suffering servant songs. And the suffering servant there is referred to as the Holy One, the Righteous One, the arm of the Lord. And so all of those images would have probably come forward in their mind that by this time had taken on very messianic uh, overtones and understanding, right? Peter's telling them, just like he said at the end of uh, chapter 2, it, he's just saying it in a little bit different way. Uh, you crucified Jesus, who is now both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Messiah. And so here he's using a little bit different terminology, but the idea is the same. You've, you've, you've killed your Savior. Y'all the ones who crucified him. Uh, then he uh, goes on, uh, page 24, right in the middle of page, Acts 3.16. He says, but uh, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The Greek there is very clunky. It's, it's very uh, difficult. And that's why this translation reads uh, a little bit weird by faith in his name. His name has made this man strong. There's a strong emphasis on his name uh, in that passage, right? Emphasis on Jesus' name. By faith in his name. This is the very name, his name, that has made this man strong, who, who you both see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health uh, in front of you all. Uh, the word perfect health there uh, is the same word that's uh, used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, unblemished. To talk, remember, uh, it would often be used of sacrificial animals. They had to be unblemished. They had to be whole, right? They had to be perfectly healthy is the idea there. So the idea of perfect health is, is a good way to translate it. But there's, again, an interesting connection to that, that this man has been made whole, He's now unblemished. Uh, and, and part of the reason I think that Peter picks that word is because because that man is lame, he can't take part in the temple worship services that, that was prohibited. Those who were lame or blemished or had, you know, certain deformities, they couldn't go into the temple and open sacrifices and do things of that nature. So this guy has been excluded for all of his life. Right. He's he's been like a blemished uh, animal that can't be used, 
right? But now he's been made whole. He's been given perfect health. Verse uh, 317, oh, now this is so important. Uh, this is powerful what Peter's about to say. He says, uh, now, brothers, I know that you did this in ignorance, just as your leaders also did, right? But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. So repent and turn back. There, there it is together. You've got to change what you're thinking about this whole thing, and you've got to turn back, turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped out and so that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Oh, man, that's power. Now, he's not even through yet. Uh, look at the top of page 25. Let's, let's finish this sermon out and then we'll go back and uh, make some comment on it. Look at page 25 and we'll finish out the sermon and then, then we'll pick it apart a little bit. Um, ah, it's one of my favorite phrases in Peter's sermons. Heaven must welcome him until the times of restoration of all things. Uh, there in Greek, it's just heaven must welcome him until the restoration of all, which is, which is interesting. Uh, I'll say more about that in a minute. Restoration of all, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the very beginning. Moses also said, uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring or through your seed. So God has raised up his servant and sent him first to, uh, to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. There, there's repentance. Turning each of you from your evil ways, right? That's what God is doing. Now, uh, this again... Um, very similar to what Peter preached the first time, but he adds a few things in that are a little bit different here. Uh, again, there's an emphasis on the name of Jesus, right? It's by faith in his name that these things have happened. But a really significant thing in 317 uh, is what he says there about the brothers. He says, brothers, now I know that you did this in ignorance just as your leaders also did, Right. I think what Peter is starting to understand uh, and something that's going to be critical going forward is that, um, well, think about the disciples. Where did all the disciples go at the end of Jesus' life? They're gone. They're scattered. Why? Because they didn't really understand what was going on. Right. Peter and the other disciples, they had they and you, and you remember this. Luke said this three or three, I think he says it three times. Jesus says to them. Boys, we're going up to Jerusalem not many days from now. When I get up there, they're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to, they're going to despise me. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm coming back, right? And you remember every time he said that, it said, and it was kept from their understanding so that they didn't fully comprehend what he was saying, right? So in other words, all the way up until probably, <laughs> probably after the ascension, they're completely ignorant about what's actually happening. Right. And I think that finally, you know, now Peter's getting insight that, wow, we've all been completely ignorant of what's going on. Even the people that yell crucify, crucify, crucify. 
they didn't really understand what they're doing. And I think he's realizing that because of the response to that first sermon. Because many of those 3,000 that had become believers that were living in Jerusalem, they were probably some of those among the crowd yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. They had no idea what they were actually doing. Right. And, uh, and the reason I bring that up is a lot of scholars say that Peter is probably being hyperbolic here or trying to ruin favor with the crowd. I don't think he's doing that at all. I think he's realizing, y'all, something incredible has happened here, and none of us really got what was happening until after it happened. But he calls right? them brothers. And he calls them brothers. Yeah. So, right. So he's not saying, if y'all, you know, if y'all, it's like, hey, we were all in on this, right? We all acted out of ignorance. I now realize I acted out of ignorance. Y'all acted out of ignorance. Now, the, and, and let me just say, let me, let me go ahead and throw this out here. One of the things that he subtly uh, is implying in this as he then goes and makes this defense based on the scriptures is something that Paul is going to say later in Athens. The times of ignorance are now over. Right? Now that these things have happened and now that we're explaining it to you, nobody can claim ignorance anymore. And that's the very thing that Paul is going to say to the Greeks to the philosophers and all the Greeks that are gathered at Mars Hill in Acts 17, at the end of his sermon there, he's going to say, listen, these times of ignorance God has now overlooked, but now he commands everybody everywhere to repent. Right? And so very, very similar thing that Peter's laying the foundation for, that before all of these things that have happened with the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and now with the giving of the Spirit, we acted in ignorance before that. But now that I'm telling you, what happened? That is not an excuse. And it's again, it's to it's to press this, uh, this to press this responsibility forward. You know, right. y'all were complicit in this, even as you did it in ignorance. Uh, and again, the solution is it right? And, and notice this is what I love about it: the, the blame squarely falls on them, but right, the Lord has provided a way. What God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah should suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent, turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that seasons of refreshing may come. Immediately as Peter sets the hook, he gives them the out, right? And that, that's the gospel, right? That's the, the great thing about the gospel, is that God is reconciling everybody to himself, even his chief enemies, that's what we see all throughout the book of Acts, right? The people that have crucified him, they come to Jesus. Paul, Saul comes on the scene, the number one persecutor of the church. Hey, Paul, Saul, I know you think you know what you're doing. That ain't it. You're going to be my key man to take my message to the, to the Gentiles, right? Incredible way the Lord works. And so, yeah, so we, so, so we see this, uh, these, these themes developing uh, that now there's no excuse Right. We're telling you what's being fulfilled here. And, and let me just remind you, when we talked about Luke and also when we talked about Acts, Luke has in mind as he writes this, this, this whole history that he is um, he is describing for us these events where literally everything has changed. This is the pivot point in history, the, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus is the hinge point in human history. And if you don't understand the significance of those events and what they mean, both universally for the world, but also for you personally, you're going to be out of touch with reality. You're going to be completely out of touch with reality. I heard a podcast recently where 
uh, Stephen Meyer. I don't know, some of y'all may know who Stephen Meyer is. He's a, he's a believer and he does a lot of work in um, uh, biology and he's written several books on, you know, uh, uh, speaking against, you know, the popular Darwin, Darwinistic theories of evolution and whatnot. And I heard him on a podcast talking to a guy who was an unbeliever and he was talking about the foundational, you know, realities of the resurrection and the things that he believed that made him a Christian. And, you know, the guy said, I find that so hard to believe. And uh, Stephen Meyer said, but I, he said, just, just, for a ma- just for a minute, I'm not asking you for to believe it. But he said, just put yourself in this frame of thought. If Jesus was actually raised from the dead, if that actually happened, how would it affect your view of the world? And the guy immediately said, what I'm thinking, that would change everything. Right. And that's what Luke is laying out here. Right. That these events have literally changed everything. And if you want to be in line with where reality is heading, then you then you got to understand these events and how you're related to them. Right. How you're related to Jesus. <laughs> that's the big deal. Are you going to stay on the side of being an enemy? Or are you going to give your allegiance to him? And you, you can see the hope in that, too. At, right after he says, uh, repent, turn back. So that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see that? And that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Now, the thing that I find interesting in that is that Peter tends to link, seems to be linking the return of Jesus and these times of refreshing with the people repenting. Right. Do this so that these things may happen. And then the very next thing that he says, top of page 25, heaven must welcome him until the time of the restoration of all. And that's what he says in Greek. And all things is okay, but but all is is, might be a better way to think of it and leave it a little bit ambiguous. Uh, And I think probably Peter may have some inkling at this point. Uh, of what Paul develops later in his missionary journeys and particularly in his letters is the idea of the restoration of all of Israel. That the kingdom cannot come until Israel is restored, right? In full, until all representatives of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel are restored. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has not cut Israel out of his future plans, but in fact, a day is coming when the Savior is going to appear and he's going to remove godlessness from Jacob and he's going to restore all of Israel. And at that time, all of Israel will be saved, right? And so I think Peter now uh, and the other disciples early on are starting to see that God's plans for the future are absolutely intertwined with what happens with the people of Israel, right? Those things are inseparable. And we'll see that develop as we go through the book of Acts. We'll see, particularly when we get to Paul, and some really important things happen there with that. Uh, and so already we have this kind of uh, foretaste of what's going to come uh, with, with that a, a little bit later in Acts. And then we'll, we'll talk about some things in some of Paul's letters. Now, we're right at time. The last thing he, he quotes here, he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 16, where he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And that's Moses speaking there. Uh, the Lord had given Moses insight into what he was going to do. And one of the things is he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses. Now, 
Think about that. After Moses, we get other prophets that show up. Samuel has already been mentioned. Samuel is a critical figure in the Old Testament. He is the last judge, but he's also the first of what we call the classical prophets. It's going to be Samuel and Elijah, and, and you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? All the ones that have books written after him. But the thing that Moses says here is, I'm going to rose up a prophet like me. And the difference is, there was never a prophet after Moses who had direct access to God like Moses did. Moses was the only prophet that was allowed to go into the very presence of God, right? You do not have another prophet until Jesus comes. And then he is the prophet like Moses. And going a little bit further, right? He's, he, does, <laughs> he not only has access to God, he is God himself, right? And so here... Uh, Peter brings up this passage, which is a well-known passage. Uh, in fact, the, the people at Qumran uh, had written about this in the last days. The Messiah uh, will work with the prophet who's raised up like Moses. And so uh, Peter makes the point that this prophet, Jesus is that prophet, right? That's the point he's getting to. And you better be very careful to pay close attention to what that prophet says so that you won't be cut off. And then he says, in addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. You're the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. That hinges us and gets us ready for what's going to happen uh, here in chapters 8, 9, 10, where the Lord opens up the gospel to all the families of the earth with the Gentile people groups that he's going to send Peter to and then Paul a little bit later. Um, and then lastly, he says, 326, God has raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So again, we see this uh, theme uh, that God comes to the Jews first, offers them salvation, and then he's going to turn to the other families of the earth. Now, that's a, that, that's a good place to uh, stop. We'll pick up right there. Next week, read chapters 4 and 5. Uh, we're, we're going to see the aftermath of this, because as you can imagine, that's going to stir up quite a bit of trouble. Uh, people are going to get bent out of shape about that. Uh, per, per, particularly the leaders are going to be upset about it. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see the reaction to it, and then, um, and then we'll, we'll work our way on into chapter 5 with some really wild things that happen over there uh, with the early church. Now, anybody, any questions or comments on that as we close out here? All right, y'all, well, let, me, let me pray for us and we will turn loose. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us. And we thank you especially for your word that you've given to give us direction and guidance and understanding. Uh, particularly, as, as we just touched on, we are living in the midst of a crooked and uh, twisted generation that is not only uh, thrown your truth away, but it's thrown away the very idea of truth to begin with. And so there are so many people that are wandering around in our culture lost without direction, not knowing which way is up, which way is down. And we know that the only hope they have is to find the truth that is in Jesus himself. He is the truth. And apart from him, we can't fully understand reality or anything that's actually going on. So, Father, help us to live in such a way that will ask people, that, that people will ask us, 
to tell them about the hope that we have within us. And so we pray that you'll make us worthy of that and give us opportunities to do that very thing as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen.